What, 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 what is this? What are we doing? What? What? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Anu. You got, you got, you got to, you got to do it. You got to do the deal. This is music, mindfulness, and madness. There it is. Hey, coming at you. The pukers. The way you say that always reminds me of oh my Casey Kasem's. And always reminds me of Casey Kasem's uh, top forty show. Oh, You've got man. that voice. Well, I could Casey Kasem would be more like. Uh, this is music, <laughs> mindfulness, and madness. <laughs> <laughs> Number one on the charts this week, D Madden. Yeah. Happy birthday, D. I we got a special story from North. Uh, He also he also had the thing where he'd be like, and also at at number two, we've got Michael, the producer. (laughs) From Los Angeles, California. And then he would always do that. Coming up with a bullet this week. He'd always do that thing where, like, we got a letter from North Dakota. That a, 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 a nice oh, single no. mother, nice single mother who's who's who has a sick daughter and and would like to know if, if we he could we could play Mick Jagger. She's the boss. So here it is. <laughs> well, it was always well we like can. that. So here it is. Yeah. Going out to Donna in South Dakota. On that, American yeah. Top Forty, <laughs> and he was he was married to some uh, I can't remember the woman's name, but she was this blonde actress who was like a foot and a half taller than he was, I two feet taller that. than he was. I uh, that. Played, uh, yeah, I love it, and and I'm pretty sure he was of some kind of vaguely uh, like Middle Eastern descent, and his real name was like Casey Kasim or something like that, and he had kind yeah, of like yeah, yeah. tweaked it for. Uh, Mainstream acceptance. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Vague, vaguely, um, uh, yeah, of that nature over there. Maybe we should just not not spend oh, boy. Talk, talking about Tony Visconti, just talk about Casey Kasem. Sure. A uh, couple other things you didn't know about Casey Kasem. He was the first <laughs> actor to do the voice for Shaggy in the Scooby-Doo franchise That's and true. also played Robin on the Super Friends. That's oh, Casey Kasem, oh, who did. died that's right. in 2014. He did. Yeah. Super true. Friends. <clears throat> Wonder Twin Powers activate. So, so. Uh, well, there's people in, are there people in Morocco listening to us going like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yes. Casey Kasem. But they have the internet. They'll look it up. Yeah. All right. What are we doing today? What are we talking about? <clears throat> we were going to talk we about... Whittle it um, down to... We were going to talk about... We were going to... Lean into a topic that's that's uh, that's um, special to, to me, for sure. Um because I've been such a huge fan for such a long time, and I and and uh, I, I've said it many times in the podcast. This album, uh, I've I sort of used an excuse to to be uh, a bit of a archaeologist of of his work, uh, specifically his production work, and, and how he actually worked 
I think up until now, I just just knew him as, as the guy that produced the Bowie records and, and the Mark Boland records. But uh, um, in my time working on this, it's it's uh, caused me to it's it sent me off into um, other areas uh, of interrogation beyond just he was just the guy that, that did the string arrangements and produced the the, the T Rex records and stuff, you know. Do you mean uh, Tony Visconti? Tony Visconti. Tony Visconti. Tony Visconti. Tony Visconti. All right. Well, thanks everyone. That's the show. That yeah, there amazing. you go. Yeah. <laughs> we covered. So who is Tony those Visconti? Are the only two so yeah. Go ahead. I, you know, I was looking at his. Uh, what's that? You go. I was just going to jump jump in and say uh, oh. he is still alive. He was born in 1944. He's 77 years old, and he is a, a record producer and musician. Yeah, I saw maybe about five years ago this girl, uh, excuse me, this woman, Christine Young from New York, who he's been uh, working with on and off for many years. And she's quite, uh, quite the artist. She's she's like really amazing, uh, very avant-garde, and just amazing voice. But like, we should definitely put some uh, clips in there of her. But I saw her at Spaceland. I saw that she was coming to LA, and I'm like, I got to go see this because I heard some of it, and I was like, Whoa, what is this? And uh, anyway, pretty amazing. And I thought, and I, I'm surprised. I I don't really know. And I think David Bowie had done a little bit of work on one of her records as well, um, per, you know, Mr. Visconti's uh, beckoning, but um, while he was still alive. Anyway, pretty amazing stuff. I was I was looking through uh, Mr. Visconti's um, discography, and I was like, there's the usual hits in there, the T-Rex and the David Bowie, and but then there's all this other stuff, and I'm just like, I had no idea. I mean, that's... It's it's so kind of what you were talking about, D. There's just so much to discover, and uh, his not only as a musician but as a producer and all the big big stuff that he's been attached to. And um, the other thing that I was gonna say too about that is you know his string arrangements and sort of like uh, that he played on a bunch of this stuff as well, and just kind of whoa, okay, I learned a lot just doing a little bit of digging let alone going back and hearing it all. I'm curious to to hear like what what your favorites are from both of you and what some stinkers are that you don't like. But let's start with the good stuff. Um well just off the top of my head, Electric Warrior of course, slider um i as of late i have i have, and this was not uh i didn't have the sent sentiment until recently tanks i've been listening to a lot tanks is a really good fucking record turns out i was always just basic i would always pretty much confine myself to uh electric warrior and slider and then the mishmash of stuff like 20th century boy that just kind of got splattered on other things but uh, tanks is a really good album um, uh, on the Bowie side, of course, uh, the Berlin Trilogy stuff, for sure. Um, so low, Heroes, 
the lodger, all of that stuff, and then and then, and then uh, some of the things that he did with with uh, with him later later on in the '90s and stuff was uh, some of it was pretty good. Heathen, Heathen's an okay record. I really like Black Star. Black Star is really is 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 tough for me to listen to just because you know just of all the things that happened around it. But uh, Black Star is a really yeah. good record. Really, really good record. He did so much, so much with Bowie. Have you have you guys heard any of the uh, the Holy Holies that he's been playing live? He's been doing kind of a uh, Bowie tribute live show where I think he's playing bass, and then he's got some other folks doing that. I, follow I haven't him on the heard any of that just yet, it. but uh, I was just yeah, I follow yeah, him on the socials. I haven't heard any of that stuff. I know that the, like that's been kind of his his vehicle for to get to to play. Um, Men of Silver World era stuff again, because I guess he played on that record, and yeah, then you know, Bowie went off and did the Ziggy thing, and then and then Tony went off to to, to be a full time producer. And never really got to play that stuff live. And when Bowie passed away, that's that's when he started doing that thing. Like he did he did a tour where he where they just played um, Men of Silver World with Soup to Nuts, and this thing they're doing now is a little bit different, but they're still. It's still much of that in the set, I think. Yeah, he did a whole bunch of... Uh, he worked with the Boomtown Rats, Elaine Page, the Moody Blues, Modern Romance. Boy, there's a ton of stuff on this list. I just I mean, discovered that Christine Young... From like late I just discovered that Christine St Young he worked, stuff he recently. With Sparks, Sparks. Oh, did he? Why do Why do I not know that? Yeah, he worked on 1975's "Indiscreet" and on their uh, kind of covering themselves record "Plagiarism." Yeah, really great. Wow. So, so yeah, he was born in were... Brooklyn. Born in Brooklyn. Uh, spent some time banging around in studios, playing in bands, mostly um, spent spent a lot of time as a studio rat, sweeping floors and, and doing what he could. Um, and then at some point, he, he had something happened where, where he came to realize that um, that maybe his efforts would be, would be better spent in, in the UK because of all the things that were happening in the UK. So he moved to the UK. Uh, met Bolin first, I think, and um, like he likes to tell the story that uh, when he met when he met Mark Bolin, Bolin was married to somebody, and they were living in a flat that had cold water. So uh, Mark Bolin would come over to his house once a week to take a shower, and uh, he would hang out with him, and they spent a lot of time together early on, and uh, then he started helping to make records. I think that's the first tool of being a producer is you have to like make sure your musicians smell nice. So they have to have showers. So if that's what you need to make a record, get them clean, stick them in the studio. Is, is that what I did wrong? I should have been asking you to take showers. <laughs> exactly. Get in the shower and then get I in the booth. I don't think I ever did that. Yes, so one um, thing I think is interesting about. Oh, go ahead. No, you go. 
I was just going to say one one thing that's interesting about Tony Visconti is that for someone with such a long career, he's worked in a bunch of different genres and worked with a bunch of artists. And and long career meaning like he started having hit records in the 60s and has basically has had hit records every decade since. And that's unusual. Uh, n- normally, uh, producers don't don't last that long, and particularly if they have one or two big hits, they end up having like a real hot run of making a bunch of records that sound like that hit, and then ev- that sound becomes passe. And unless they last long enough to come back and do it again when it comes back around again in twenty years, they're they're kind of done. So one thing that's interesting about Tony Visconti is that uh, he's he's been a producer for a real long time and has has worked. It's mostly rock, but a, a pretty broad range across that rock spectrum. And I think it might be worth talking a bit about what a producer does in general uh, yeah. as, a, as a way into talking about what, what you think makes him good or uh, you know why, why he's been successful. And I think that's, uh, again, unlike some other producers, he also doesn't really seem to have like a sonic stamp that he puts on a record where I don't think you can listen to one of his records and be like, oh, Tony Visconti produced that in, in the way that you might if you heard like, Trevor Horn or uh, Phil Spector uh, or or some of uh, Mutt Lang's classic records, you know, things like that. So what uh, what would you guys say a producer does? Mm. I think um, most of the time, I mean, historically, producers were put in place by record labels to manage the budget and make sure that the product gets done and handed in in a timely fashion. <clears throat> that was my understanding of it, kind of at a roots level, which is they didn't want to just hand the money over to some drug-addled musicians and then go make the record and bring it back. They're like, we're going to hire this guy who's got a thing going on and he understands what we want and what you want as an artist. And then somehow tries to put it all together, like, you know, uh, obviously intersecting with the artist and finding out what their vision of their their next record is. Um, And I think prior to that, it was really about singles, you know, like prior to making records, like full, you know, eight to 10 or 12 songs, they were doing singles. So producers were just like hammering. So they were working really quickly with a lot of different artists all the time, one single in a row, but they had a lot of those guys had a real signature sound, you know, the Phil Spector's of the world and, a lot of that um, that world back then in the, like the 50s and 60s, they were just like, we just need content. We're a record label. We need to sell singles because they, you know it goes in and out of fashion in about a week. There's a single and then it's like, boom, what's the next single? Who's the next hit? So I think it was really, and, and my experience of, I, I haven't worked with a whole lot of record producers as an artist, which is, you know, for as long as I've been doing this, it's kind of weird. And uh, that's something that's still on my bucket list, which is like, you know, get in the studio with a producer and like do something that's kind of really about my vision and what I want to accomplish. And if there's a label, that's great. Um, But that's sort of, you know, bits and pieces. It's just like they just need to get it done. And when stuff goes awry, they're going to manage. They they have sort of the the, I'm going to call it the God's eye view looking down. And then you've got an engineer. And so the producer would really manage the whole uh, session of what's getting recorded, how it's getting recorded. They'll do pre-production. You know, they'll talk about like, well, what kind of record do you want to make, Mr. Artist? And then they talk about it. And then they, you know, they'll push and pull and kind of steer them in a direction. Um, 
And I'm sure the label has a lot to say about that, too, because they don't, you know, historically, artists are just like, they want to make a hard left turn. And they're just, the label's like, whoa, 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 we signed you for this. So we need more like this style that we're used to you, because we're putting up the money for this. So, you know, it's that the meeting of commerce and art, and how do you manage that and get things complete in a timely manner and hand it in. And then there's the wild personalities of some of these uh, producers that can get in the way to the Mutt Langs of the world who will just spare no expense. And yet that means your expense or the label's expense to get shit done, you know, like huge orchestral strings and just like spending money on stuff. It's like, was that really necessary, you know, but also expanding vision too. There's some magical records that are just like, you know, would not have happened without the the producer and and their their stamp whether you know however much it stood out or not you know but a big influence on that stuff so but i think it's interesting that he doesn't have a stamp like you said on you i i couldn't really listen to anything that i've heard and gone i mean it's got a kind of a thumbprint from the era or the artist but i wouldn't go oh yeah that's it's not like you know like trent reznor if I hear something produced by Trent Reznor, you don't need to tell me. I hear it and I'm like, oh, that sounds like Trent Reznor produced it. Do you know? Yeah, and I wonder how much of that, like, so in my experience, producing can be, there's kind of a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And at, at, or a, a, a multidimensional space. And it can encompass, there are, some, there are some producers who have a strong audio engineering background, meaning that, you know, if they they know what frequencies they want to boost or what effects that they want, uh, and things like that. And there are other producers that basically know none of that stuff and speak in much more abstract terms and work with engineers. And I think perhaps in Visconti's case, it's clear he knows a lot about audio, but I think part of what gives his records uh, a little bit more of a, a, a varied uh, sonic characteristic is working with different engineers. Um, so I, I do, particularly, you know, through the decades, what records sound like has changed pretty dramatically, both as equipment has evolved and as uh, tastes have evolved and improved. Uh, but I, I, another way you can think about um, a producer, uh, record producer, is that they're a little bit like the director of a movie, yeah. um, you know, in, in that they are ultimately the ones who have to coordinate all of these efforts. And they may not be writing the script, uh, they may not be. Uh, performing the parts. They may not be holding up the microphone boom and things like that, but they know who to hire and how to tell people, okay, go stand over there. Or don't do it like this, do it like that. Um, and like the directors, you know, in, in a movie, there are some who will stick to the script and just basically be like, hey, the script says to do this. So this is what we're doing. And my job is just to facilitate and coordinate and make sure that there's coffee and donuts on the craft services table and that it's in focus and that we're on time and under budget. And there are other directors who look at the script and they see it as a jumping off point or they have a vision for how they're going to, they, they see something in there that uh, the artist uh, may not see. And I think ultimately, from my perspective, the best producers look at a, an artist with their batch of songs and they think, how do I help this artist realize whatever their vision is? And in some cases, that means doing what the artist wants. In other cases, what the artist thinks they want is actually not what's really going to get that thing across the line. And looking at at someone like Tony Visconti, you don't have that many hits or that many successful records without clearly being able to reach in and find something in the artist that resonates and like pull it out or, or amplify it a little bit more. 
Yeah, and also I think editing out the the stuff that doesn't work too, whether in the moment or just going like, all right, let's try that. And you try it and he's just like, no, no, no. You know, but I, I found when I've been, when I collaborate with people, it's really helpful to have that instant feedback because I may think I have a great idea and I spit it out and then we try it and it's like, that was awful. Let's try something else. You know, but keeping the flow of a, of a, a recording project moving along, you know, rests on engineers and producers. Got the kind of the combination of that stuff. Um, and that's really a um, not an easy feat, especially like if you're the producer and engineer. I, I just had lunch with a friend of mine uh, yesterday and then one with the day before, and they're both engineers and producers. And we talked about that specific thing about you got to keep the energy up in a session because you really don't want to like, if you have a bad take, you just go like, all right, just shake that off. Let's just keep moving. There's other stuff to do, you know, and 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 uh, managing the project without feeling like you're strangling it. And And a lot of different producers have different personalities and techniques. I, Tony always struck me as like a <clears throat> very up, very personable, a lot of talking, but like not, not getting in the way. Just like, let's get on the road and do this thing and like do it. Yeah. Um, in this, in this tape op interview, he talks about, you know, um, he, he, it's, it's well worth a read for anyone interested in producing. And as a companion to what we're talking about today, but he's like, talking about artists and he's like, these are, these, these people are human and they're insecure. And my job is to be their best friend, to be the best buddy they have, to challenge them artistically, point out where they could play a bit better and all that. Yep. Very simple, simple and, you know, deceptively simple. (laughs) Well, I I think part of the challenge is, is artists can be volatile, right? And, and Mm -hmm. maybe we can also talk a bit about our own experiences, both producing or being produced and how it can be good or bad. Um, but certainly there is a way w- many musicians are insecure, which is part of why they're musicians. And there's a way to tell the singer, for example, that you need another take, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and it, you, you don't want to sit there and be like, that sucked. Or do you know how to sing or whatever? Um, but you also want to make sure that they understand it. Like I, I often, one of the phrases that I use a, a lot when I'm producing or, or, um, uh, working with somebody else is like, I think we could do that a little bit better. You know, like there's a way to encourage people. Like, I know you have it in you. I think you can do this better. Yeah. I, th- I think the capturing magic is really the whole trick. You know, like, did you get a performance? It may not be perfect, but like, you know, if you're looking down from above to like, okay, we need to, we need all these parts to make this particular uh, production on this song. And like, that was pretty good. But especially, you know, knowing which parts are critical uh, leaving room for happy accidents, you know, those happy mistakes where you're like, whoa, or you try something, you throw in, in like a rogue element, I like to call it, where you're just like, you know, you didn't announce this before, but like, oh, yeah, there's there's a sitar over there. And like, there's this guy who's going to come in and just like, what? You know, without, you know, rocking the ship too much, because it really is, you know, I totally relate to the temperamentalness of, especially working with some of the wackos I've worked with before who are amazing artists but also impatient. They want to get it done. <clears throat> Specifically, like some old extra fancy stuff, Brian would just be, he'd do a take and he'd be like, okay, that's great, let's keep going. And we're like, hold on, hold your horses. Let's try this again. I had just this one thing. And the engineers usually were new to us. So like I did a lot of translating in those moments. 
and with the band too. I don't. I wouldn't call myself a. We were all kind of producing it, but there were times where I would just sit in there and listen and go, "No, nah, that wasn't it." You know, like it needs more energy. You start to learn to speak in a more abstract nature, where you're you're talking about colors and emotion rather than like you know, well, you missed that one note. Just that one, and it's just like, oh, that drives me nuts. It's just well, like I think good good producers yeah. do both of those things, right? Sometimes, yeah. it, like it, you could take something like a guitar solo, right? And if you're talking to a guitar player, and the problem mm. is they fucked up one note in the solo, what you want to basically say is you made a mistake right here. You know, we can hear it. Let's roll it back right there. Hear that note? You flubbed it. And maybe in the moment, uh, everybody else thought it sounded fine. Right or conversely, the guitar player might finish the solo and put the guitar down and go, "Hey, Michael, um, I, I I made a mistake in the solo. Yep. I, I I felt it as soon as it happened. Let's do another take." You might, as the producer, listen back to it and go, hey, "You know what? It's fine. Like the the feel of the thing is great, and it's not worth retracking it because I don't think you're going to do it better, and no one's going to hear it in the mix anyway. And like it, you know, th- those types of things in my in my experience happen all the time. You can get as the as the performer, you're putting too much of a magnifying glass of is it perfect as opposed to does it feel good. But the other thing I would think about, I would I would say that it, part of what a producer does is sometimes what you're doing is you're saying, look, the performance was technically fine. You played all the notes; they were in time, they were in tune. Um, it just didn't feel good, or it felt lifeless. So do it again, but give it and saying something like give it a little more energy in technical terms. What the guitar player is probably actually going to do is to play maybe a little bit more ahead of the beat than sitting back in the pocket. And they might be hitting a couple of the notes a little more aggressively and playing it a little louder or just whatever they are instinctively or intuitively doing on the guitar to convey more energy rather than less energy. And sometimes that's what you're doing as a producer. You're like, you did it fine. It's just that I want it to feel different. Make it, make it, punchier, quieter, sadder, happier, you know, more dynamic and figuring out a language that you can use to, to talk to your artists or your performers that they understand that conveys what you want. So when you say, make it more blue and they play it and you're like, yeah, 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 that's what I mean. And not sit there yelling at them. No, dumbass. I said, make it more blue. That's not more blue. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, looking at this tape op uh, uh, article, I think that's one of the things that Visconti can do. He's able to communicate with the artists, understand what it is they're trying to do, and then figure out what, what to tell them and what he can add or take away to, to get it there. And I think that's what uh, the, the best producers do. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's sort of hard to point at some of his stuff and say, oh, this is my favorite production of his because, again, unlike some producers, what he does is so balled up with what the artist does. I can't really say, oh, he did a great job producing this record. I just point at the record. And I'm like, this is a really good record. And it, it might be, it is perhaps useful if you look at an artist where there is a couple of records that he did and some records that he didn't do so you can hear or perceive the difference. But for for example, something like T Rex, I can't imagine what T Rex would have sounded like without Tony Visconti producing, you know. Oh, and and, well, and as a result, it's hard for me to pull apart what he did versus what he didn't do. So yeah, um, so he was definitely very much of an amplifier for the the T Rex sound for sure. Because when when Boland started working with him, he was a folky. He wasn't, he wasn't even a rock and roll guy. He was a folky. 
and uh, he started uh, dirty hippie. Was, yeah, he was he was he he was well he was a dandy he was like he was a weird folky he was he was a folky with style um he uh he was known around town as as a bit of a dandy was was uh and and was like uh the mod of all mods prior to that would show up in in like the the, the fashion and mod scenes and stuff it's just like fashion plate guy and um that all happened before Tyrannosaurus Rex, and then and then you know he cut, he sort of parlayed his his um, influencer status, invoking a modern term because that, he was a bit of an influencer of his day in terms of fashion. He was you know he was that guy. He he parlayed that in, into starting a band, uh, and that band was was T Rex. So when he when he did the folky thing. Uh, you know, if you go back and look at look at footage of like old Tyrannosaurus Rex, he's he's uh, tarted up pretty good. He's not. He doesn't look like a filthy hippie. Um, no, and he's he was sitting down a lot too, and like kind of a la yeah. you know a lot of the Indian musicians of the time, where he was like, oh, I yeah. want all the attention, so I'm going to sit down like not even like folk people, but like you know Indian folk music. Yeah, and like you know just have bongos or tablas and like you know my guitar. Mm-hmm. And then that he blew it up. I, I think that's that kind of what you said, Anu was was uh, pointing to. I think what makes him such a successful producer is his lack of you know sort of thumbprint on things. He can be really transparent, pull the best of whatever you can pull out of these artists to put on that particular record, and uh, let the artist shine. Where you know he's more of the arranger and the producer. Where he's like putting those elements together, going like, "Oh, we need more like purple over here, and we need more green over here. Let's try that and see what that does," you know, to help continue to elaborate on whatever the focus was. That was and true like, of a lot of his thinking. stuff. That was true of a lot of his stuff. The T Rex stuff very much had his thumbprint on it. it, it the thing is, is when when Mark Bowen decided he was going to pick up a Les Paul and and make rock and roll, he talked to Tony Visconti about like, "Hey, you know, I." I'm really not into the yes stuff or, or like any of the music that's going on right now. I'm not, a, not down with the moody blues. I want to kind of get back to Chuck Berry. And I, I've got this idea to start, you know, making like Chuck Berry style rock and roll. And, and just getting back to what we were talking about, um, like, like what, what, did he, what, what would it have been like had Biscani not been involved? It would have been like shitty Chuck Berry rock and roll. The thing that Tony Visconti brought to it was this this sort of Phil Spector, these flourishes. It was his idea to add strings. It was, um, I, I think that he had he played a big part in in, um, in just directing the turtles to do the right kind of doo-wop stuff in a way that that made it sound old but still made it sound fresh, you know. But really, like his, yeah. his the, the, the part of the, the aspect of, uh, of him and his contribution to T-Rex was string arrangements. He got into production. Uh, he was inspired to, to, to become a producer by, by George Martin. He, was, he, he loved the Beatles. He listened, and this is something that, again, reason 436, why uh, I'll never understand why people who say they hate the Beatles and that the Beatles are everything that's wrong with rock and roll. Um, uh, can say that because it, I, I suspect that if you ask that group, okay, well, do you like T-Rex? And they would go, oh, of course. Tony Visconti yeah. was 
was massively influenced by George, George Martin. And, and uh, the, 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 it was, George Martin was the reason he wanted to become a producer. And when um, the Beatles started doing stuff like Yesterday, uh, and, and doing th these, these orchestral things, things with string arrangements, uh, he goes, oh, he thought, oh, well, I want to do that too. How did, how did George Martin figure out how to do that? So he went out, he went off and like taught himself how to um, score music and write sheet music and, and write string arrangements. And um, when Boland decided to go electric, uh, Tony, Tony used, kind of used him as a guinea pig is, in, in a way. Um, he saw that as an opportunity to, to add this other thing, this other aspect to um, uh, Mark Boland's vision for, you know, Chuck Berry rock and roll for, for the, the 70s kids and turn it into something special. And, that's, and, and his thumbprint is those strings, the stuff he did with those strings and, um, and just the way, the way he mixed everything. He mixed all that stuff together. Yeah, the way, I the way he made that, that stuff also... work rock and roll. I suspect that there's also a lot that that we don't see. Like part of being a musician or a producer is knowing instinctively how to make some subtle but important tweaks to get the groove to work. And a lot of times, as a producer, you're looking at the artist and you're going, "Let's try it a little faster. Let's try it a little slower. You know, let's try it with a slightly different feel. Maybe even saying, "Hey, this isn't not in a great key for you. Let's bump it up or down uh, a whole step or two." And I think when, when I think about T-Rex, you know, a lot of people talk about the songs and the melodies and blah, blah, blah. But I, I think the thing that makes the T-Rex stuff so happening is the grooves. Basically, all those songs are just grooves. The, the songwriting, so it's, it's not bad oh, yeah. songwriting, but, you know, it's, you know, it, it, for me, it's, it's about the, the feel and the vibe and, 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 and the groove. Uh, and, and I suspect that there were a lot of things where it's like, especially back in the tape days, you did a lot of pre-production of like, let's rehearse it and figure out how we're going to do it when we get in there to do the thing. And I, I would bet that a lot of those songs, if you even bumped them up or down, you know, five BPM, you'd be like, yeah, it doesn't, now it doesn't work. Wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think production and pre-production, you hit it on the, on the, the head of the nail. Cause that's, I, you know, a, a little bit of perspective, before, during, and after, you know, these things when you're mixing it too, like what are we leaving in? What are we taking out? But especially the pre-production and the production where back then, you know, you didn't have endless, you know, hard drives. You could just like do as many takes as you wanted. It's like you kind of got two or three shots, you know, depending on how big the budget is. But if you got an idea of like, oh, these are all the parts and like, oh, the other thing I was going to say too about Visconti and the, and the string arrangements like uh, Mark Ronson had was the, one of those guys too. It was all about string arrangements as well as musical sort of directorish kind of style. Um, and apparently there was this little book. I've been kind of looking for it, but it's a a little um, book about string arrangements. I, mean, I think there I know was the book you're talking about. Tony Biscotti. I, I heard Tony. Yeah, I heard Tony Biscotti talk about it in a podcast like a couple weeks ago. I know the book you're talking about. Uh, it's the same book that. Um, that um, Mick Ronson, Mick Ronson used to, to, to learn how to write strings. Yeah, Mick Ronson had it. And Mick Ronson. Yeah, and there was, a, there was another guy too. It seemed to be like, you know, oh, okay. You know, so you got like, he had another set of tools in there. Like, you know, string arrangements is one of those things where like, I, for me, the music that I've been doing, I, I have to peck it out one fucking note at a time. But if you ask me to like go into a studio and go like, you know, 
do you have a string arrangement ready for this? I'd be making some phone calls and getting it done, you know, but that's part of the producer too is, you know, like the artist has an idea. Your job is to help to facilitate either pre, you know, or during and then after, if you miss something, you know, like, what, what do we need to add to this now that the artist has sort of done everything they can do? But I think, you know, it's kind of part politics, uh, definitely diplomacy, uh, a cheerleader, you know, all of those different sort of hats to wear during that time. And just making sure, you know, everything's working, all the gears working and like the energy doesn't get zapped out of the fucking situation. It's a lot. But I think that's probably what sustained him for so long is just like his his ability to do all that stuff and then the you know artists obviously rave about him they're like oh my god and the people rave about the records that they make and they're like oh he's the guy right now and so you know everything flows to you at that point but uh yeah what a powerhouse of a a producer you know and and not you know this overt like flash in the pan where he had like five or 10 good years. It's just like, he's still having good years. Black Star is a great example of that. I mean, he won a, he won a Grammy for that, for best engineering, I think. And oh, it's just it? like, wow. Playing on uh, Anu's uh, director metaphor, the, the, other, the other thing that I think that, that um, Tony Visconti probably benefited from, benefited from greatly was, was he was a musician. He started out playing bass in bands. Um, he, uh, continued to, to, yeah, to, um, and he would, it, it was not uncommon for him to contribute to the albums he produced on. It was not uncommon for him to contribute backing vocals. It was not uncommon for him to pick up a bass, um, and, and to lend a hand that way. So, um, I, I, I would have to think that he was, you know, looking at the spectrum of, of producers, uh, going from running the gamut from the the kind the, the ones that you guys are talking about that just kind of talking colors and, and aren't really musicians, he he was more of a of a guy that playing the the film metaphor who started out as an actor and then became a director and then became one of those those directors that everybody likes because they he speaks their language, you know, and, it, and that that's probably something that's helped him a lot too. Yeah, because you know you're, if you're speaking in, in if you have sort of a big emotional vocabulary in terms of music, it's much easier to communicate which, what you're hearing and not hearing from the artist where you're like, Oh, okay, here's the big old picture of what we're trying to do, but they're down there in the nitty gritty trying to get the parts and then, and making sure all those parts work together. It is, there's a whole lot of different kind of communication going on and then dealing with, you know, people doing drugs and drinking and like all that stuff too. And like, how how much do we play and all that stuff? And boy, it's a lot. It's a lot. So, and did yeah he um you know it's interesting you say that I was just listening to something uh, uh, an interview with him uh, before we started this and he was they, they, uh, someone was asking him what happened with the T Rex relationship why did it end and he said you know he said Mark was uh, getting a little too crazy with with the uh, with the party favors and I had uh, a kid and I had to go to him and he said I tried to get him to step it up for uh, the last album we worked on with him that zinc alloy that I with the long name zinc alloy and something something and and he was t he was saying that he was trying to get Mark to, to get his act together and and try to come up with something try to evolve and you know um, 
in, in, into uh, doing something a little more sophisticated. And, and he said the mark just kept going, no, I want to do one more for the kids. Um, and but between that and uh, the, the the drug problems he was having, he just he had to he had to stop working with them. So I, mean, I think it's a testament to that. Yeah, it's a lot. That's hard. Have either of you guys uh, read his autobiography? No, he's got an autobiography. I, know. I have not, but, yeah. but I will add it to my uh, my list. Bowie Bolin like... and the Brooklyn Boy. Yeah, yeah. I actually I'm sure have that's got a, that's got some stories for sure. Yeah, I haven't either. I haven't read it. It's interesting because, like, I haven't really spent a lot of time studying his stuff other than just growing up listening to it. But it wasn't—I was never obsessed with Tony Visconti. It was just always like, "Oh, that's the guy who produced that," you know. And I was before I got into sort of the back end of this stuff. I was just playing music, and then you start to figure out all the bits and pieces of like, "Oh, what, that name keeps coming up and coming up," and like, what did he bring to the table? And especially Tony Visconti. I mean, such you know with. Just Bowie and Bolin, if that's all he'd had ever done and then quit, you know, what what an amazing career already, you know. But, like, he worked with, like, Thin Lizzy. I was just looking at this list again, and I'm like, Thin Lizzy. Yeah, that's right. He, Moody he did Blues. Thin Lizzy. That's right. Yeah, that was something I just um, was reminded about. I was watching a Thin Lizzy documentary, and they were talking about that. I think he's even in it, the documentary I saw. But yeah, he yeah, just he ran the gamut so much, and he's funny. The guy's got a lot to say too, you know. He's, he's um, I just uh, was watching a documentary that that Bowie documentary where they're like, uh, what was it called? I think it was Five Years. Was that the one? There's anyway, five really years fascinating, you know. Like, there's the last five years. It, well, it was actually it's like a three part thing that was done by somebody that was like there's like five years, and then there's a middle one, and there's another one called The Last Five Years. Probably That's right. It was, I think it was the last five years that I just yeah, probably yeah, really great. You know, and just like pulling those parts out and like you know just writing up those little single parts, and you're just like you know how to put all that together. It is really like being a director of a movie because you have all these moving parts and like humans and technical stuff and like uh, a budget to deal with and like what are we up to here? And especially, I got to imagine at the end of Bowie's life. Uh, what he was trying to accomplish because he knew his days were numbered, you know, more specifically than the rest of us do. I mean, we never know, but like, you know, he's like, okay, I have a plan. He always seemed to have a plan of sort of what's next, or at least like, oh, I need to have a plan for what's next. You know, as an artist, you always had that charge, but like, you know, Tony helped, it sounds like he really helped him to pull all that together for those last final pieces. And they're still coming out. I mean, just over the last five years, all the stuff that's been coming out and it was all very much Bowie directed and guided by people like Visconti and all of his managers and all that stuff. It's just like, yeah, he's still been busy. Amazing. He's still been busy remastering all of his stuff. Remastering it. And like, it seems it, remastering it like it's going back in some cases life. doing. He's reaching back into the life. Yeah, they've like been remastering and, and doing some other cool things with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, much like George Martin or George's kid, you know, like uh, doing all the remastering of the Beatles stuff where they're like trying to take, you know, uh, mono tracks 
and like turn them into stereo tracks. They're trying all sorts of wild, crazy stuff. I heard an interview with him and I got to think that, you know, Visconti's along that tip too about like, you know, obviously you want to keep working, but you also want don't want to create diminishing returns by like stepping on things and like putting out, you know, products in and music that just is like, oh, what are you doing to this? This is like legacy stuff. You don't want to fuck it up. Even doing remastering stuff that I've been doing, it's just like you need to be careful with those things, you know, because people grew up listening to those things. I did a whole bunch of uh, punk remastering stuff. And it's like, they're even more particular. It's like, oh, you don't fuck with any of that stuff. This is my record. I grew up with this. And it's like, okay. You know, it's like, you got to understand where the kids are coming from in terms of like, who's going to be listening to it and, you know, what the artist wants and just being, you know, uh, mindful of like, how much are we going to, like, what are you trying to accomplish by re-releasing this? You know what I mean? Is it just a money grab or is it just like, do you want something more out of it? You know, and I think any opportunity to, be creative during those things. I mean, he's got, you know, such a rapport with, with all those artists, you know, who are still here and not here and the labels, you know, he seems like a pretty much a go-to guy for a lot of that stuff. He's got an entree to a lot of worlds that a lot of uh, producers just don't, you know, just because of those legacy pieces that he worked on. But he's also, you know, his chops are up to, up to snuff. He's got his studio. He like walks to his studio every day and does his thing. And, I'm just like, yeah, it's an, an enviable life. Sure is. Yeah, it's funny uh, that, you know, uh, one of the mastering jobs he did um, after Bowie passed away was was cleaning up Lodger. And um, he said in interviews around the time, he goes, you know, we were never really happy with how that how that recording came out because we had to do it really quickly and we did it in this really crappy French studio uh, and we had the, the equipment we had access to was not great. Um, and we always wanted to clean it up and, and, uh, and, and try to remaster and make a better version of it. And, and he started to work on that right before Bowie died and, uh, and got enough of it done that Bowie was able to listen to some, to some of it and got and said, yeah, this is great. He got a bunch of shit from from the media and from fans about that record i thought it sounded great i was glad he did that but a lot much like you said michael people got used to that that those really crappy lodger recordings and they liked them and they people were kind of pissed that that he cleaned it up the way he did that he actually made it sound better yeah i i totally agree d i uh I'm a big fan of the Berlin trilogy that Bowie and Eno and Visconti did of Lowe and Lodger and, and Heroes. And um, when that uh, boxed set came out with the remixed version of Lodger, I was really excited because even when the, the Ryko disc uh, remasters came out in the late 80s, early 90s, 90s um, yeah. you know, Lodger's never been a great sounding record. It's a very cool record with a lot of little sonic detail in it. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways, uh, the, the weirdest of, of those three and really, really nice songs as well. And then you listen to the mixing and it's just like murky and not a lot of detail and not a lot of punch. And when they did this, um, like, true remixing not remixing in the sense of like it's extended mixes or they just put a 909 kick drum on everything they actually went through and went back to the original uh original multi-track tapes and made a new mix of the record and at first i thought okay well is he going to like 
make it modern sounding. And basically it is a better version of the mixes of the original record. They're, they're close, but they're different enough that you hear detail and it's all EQ'd nicely and everything. And, uh, you know, one of my friends had a similar reaction to some of the people on the board of like, oh, I don't like it. And I was like, well, the good news is you still have the old murky version that you can listen to anytime you want. But for people like me who actually want to hear the record sound good, um, you know, the, the new mix was eye-opening and um, I, I thought vastly superior. Uh, I agree. He's He's been working, each, each of those Bowie boxes has been interesting because they've done something like that on every one. Like they restored Man Who Sold the World to sort of its original track list and uh, sequence and things like that. And I think when they did the the 80s era one, they uh, put in a completely different, radically different mix of uh, Never Let Me Down, like start to finish the whole, whole album. Um, but yeah, it's been really interesting to see how that stuff goes. And uh, it, I think it's also a testament to uh, Visconti and his craft that he's like, yeah, this record that I made in like 1977 always bugged me. And it was great to go back, uh, you know, 30, 35 years later or whatever and get a chance to do it right. Oh, I appreciated it. Yeah. yeah I like that too. When I think, yeah, you know, I, because I he was there and did it, I'm sure he had a lot of thoughts about sort of how he might have done things differently. Because, you know, you move differently. You're moving at the, the speed of tape rather than the speed of, like, hard drives. And uh, limited time, and it's like, you know, you know what happened in the room because that's what he did. And he's just like, boy, I know there's some, like, stuff. And that's, you know, a great reason to do remastering. Not for everything, but you know it's worth a listen to this stuff if you have the budget and you want to and you're curious about what you had worked on or what someone else had worked on and you just want to like because I'm always fascinated by that process when people hand me you know stems of things and I'm going to do a mix of something. Um, I have a totally and like when I worked on your stuff, D, it was just I had a different perspective than you did because you were there, you wrote it and recorded it, and you had all that stuff around it. And then when I listen to it, I'm just like, oh, I know what I would do. This is interesting, you know without like stepping on it or like doing something else, but also having a dialogue. He, cause he was there, he knew what the intent was on those recordings, you know, his own intent as well as the artist. And like, I think that's, a, uh, especially for those iconic records, it's, it's a worthwhile endeavor. And there's some people that don't get it right for sure. Or you just go back and go, Oh, what the fuck were they thinking? You know, I've heard some remasters of some catalogs that were coming through Warner brothers when I was there uh, for Rhino. And I'm like, this sounds kind of awful. I'm not even going to name any bands, but I'm like, I remember listening, going like, this sounds distorted. I'm like, first of all, who did the remastering of it? Because they didn't do any remixes. And I'm just like, they just made it sound like, you know, tight and like just a little distorty. Yeah, you can hear the compressor breathing and they've smashed yeah. it flat and they've made it. They yeah. just basically like. It sounds like they limited it and made it like 2 dB louder and put a bunch more high end on it or something. And you're just like, ugh, they ruined it. Uh, I, I've had that experience with a couple of records that I wanted to have come out better. Uh, like Duran Duran remastered their very first record and the remaster sucked. It just, it just sucked. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the original masters weren't really all that bad. Maybe they were a little quiet by today's standards, but they put extra compression on it. And you can hear the entire mix ducking when the snare is hitting. Uh, I got a Screaming Blue Messiah's box set, and uh, a guy named Vic Mile had produced uh, all those records, and they were great-sounding records. But again, 
the original CDs were like maybe 2 dB quieter by today's standards, and they just fucking smashed it flat. And it was it's heartbreaking because those records are never going to get touched again. And now they sound like shit. Um, yeah. yeah, that's one that's of those things, bad. you know, when they, if someone comes in with and they said, here's this is the amount of money we have to work with, you know, can you do that? And they're like, yeah, I mean, you know, I can do that. It's, it's not going to go well, but sometimes, you know, you just got to say no to certain things. And like, I don't want to put my name on something that was like, especially, you know, the old punk rock stuff I worked on. I'm like, I don't want those people to remember the, and like, Oh, that's the guy who fucked up that record. Even if it's the artist telling me what to do, which is always the way it's going to be. I'm just like, no, thanks. I don't want to do that. Get some other guy, get some other schmo to do it for the, you know, uh, just a few shekels. So have either of you guys worked with a producer before on your own stuff and maybe talk about what you did as a producer on other people's things if you've done that? Mm. It, you know, you started talking about that early on and I had to think about it. Um, no, not the way, not not working with a produ- with the kind of producer and having the kind of producer relationship that, the, that you described, no, never happened. The closest thing I ever had to that was my friend Michael Haley when we worked on the Penal Colony stuff. I think that's yeah, pretty that much was, it. That was, that's it. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that too because that was more of like, a, you know, we were friends and it was like I had some technical abilities and you guys were experimenting with a bunch of stuff I knew nothing about. So, you know, like syncing up, you know, drum machines and like samples and whatnot. And it was just fun and I wouldn't have called myself... I guess I was acting as a uh, co-producer because you guys had a lot of say in that and I had a lot of say in it, but it was really like, I'm just trying to, you guys sort of had this vision and it was like you had worked it to a certain point and then I'm just trying to like, you know, move some parts around with you guys. But yeah, as far as like a traditional, like, all right, boys, I got big plans for y'all and let's hear what you got now and, you know, and let's get in the studio and like, you know, you completely like rework all that stuff. I hadn't really done that. Even the, the extra fancy stuff, we just did it, you know, in patchwork along the way. We do two, three, four songs in the studio and we're like, okay, what are we going to do with this? Because that's all the money we had. And we go like, okay, we're going to put out a single with a B-side. And you do that. But we never worked with a producer per se. I think even the guy we gave credit, we gave a producer credit to this guy for the the main record that came out. And he didn't really produce it. He was an engineer who kind of helped us, you know, record some of the stuff. And we made the mistake of giving him a credit. And he came back as soon as we were going to get signed to Atlanta Records. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want points on this. And that was never our agreement. It was one of those bullshit deals. And I'm like, fuck that guy. Well, fortunately, he he never saw a penny of it. Dude, Michael, what are just- points? Can can you explain what points are for our listeners who may not who may not know? What, what yeah, are points, great. Michael? Points I, what's what's the points? What's the points? Points are basically a percentage. You know, a lot of producers work on. Uh, they'll everyone's a little bit different, but typically on like uh, more major label uh, record deals, a producer will get paid a fee. Uh, for their uh, for their work and their effort, and they'll also get a percentage, you know, like one, two, three, four, four percent uh, on that record and all sales going on 
before the before the artist actually gets them. Every deal is a little different, but that's sort of as I understand it. So points are basically percentage. Uh, and so whatever the producer says, you know, okay, I'm going to get $50,000 to make your record. We're going to make it in this amount of time, and I'm going to get four points on all sales going forward on all formats or whatever their deal is. You know, that's what they ask for. So that's what points are. They're basically a percentage of sales. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm and, trying to and think. This, and it sounds, and like, it sounds like you were trying to give this to, you were trying to do this guy a solid by just giving him production credit when, when he wasn't actually a producer so that he could use that as credit for yeah, other he work. Was. But no, that's not what, where he went with it. He decided he was the producer and that he wanted to yeah, come. Yeah, that was, you know, lesson learned, lesson learned there. I mean, you know, it, it all worked out the way it was supposed to work out. And, um, you know, good engineer. Was he the best engineer? I, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of engineers. Um, but in terms of like myself working with a producer, I haven't. I haven't. I've, I've been in on some sessions. Like I did a, a bunch of stuff for this composer producer guy. Um and that was probably as close as I've gotten where you just come in and I, you know, I was just, I did a bunch of guitar work for him and he was very specific about uh, what he wanted and the stuff he wasn't specific about. He could tell me that he's like, I have no idea what I'm going to do here, but I have some ideas. And so we'd play, you know, he'd just be like, can you make it like a, this kind of sound? And he, and he was, he was more of a keyboard player and composer. He knew nothing of guitar. So it was, again, it was that sort of, you know, trying to, decipher what exactly he's trying to get, which happened a lot in Extra Fancy where there'd be, we'd be speaking in kind of two different languages, but we can, we'd figure out like, oh, do you mean this? And he'd be like, yes, like that. And I'm like, great. <laughs> I was just like, you know, can you make it more, you know, chartreuse sounding? And I'm like, yeah. Do you want like a car crash at the end of it too? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Okay, like this. <laughs> and he'd be like, yeah, okay, cool. And it was just, okay. And you just, you're playing a game. It's kind of like talking to a child where you kind of understand what they're getting at, but you kind of don't. And so you just, you know, it's like hieroglyphics or something where you're just, I think this is what this means. But then I've never worked with a, a full-on producer where I was the artist and the producer's like, okay, I love what you're doing. What do you think you want to do with it? Here's what I think we ought to do. What's your budget? Okay, great. I think we can do this. You know, because they come in really like a, um, a contractor of sorts where they're like, I'm going to help you build this thing. And here's all the parts I, I'm pretty sure you're going to need. And then we'll talk about the, the extras, you know, uh, but I've never really had that, you know, that's something that's definitely on the list of next things. Like I'm finished, you know, this EP is basically done. It hasn't been posted yet, but I was just like, I did all that work. And it's really nice to have someone else who's got other ears and eyes on things and going, Hey, had you thought about this? Or like, why did you do that over there? Why are you doing that? And, uh, give me some perspective. Um, and it's one way to work. I know both of you guys do that too. You know, have you ever worked with a, a producer, Mr. Anu, where it's like a proper situation where you're in a studio and like, there's Mr. Producer on the couch there telling you what to do. Not really. And, and I really wish that I, I could, uh, I have I have produced a lot of other artists, and think I have a pretty good knack for kind of seeing what people are trying to do and understanding how to pull that out of them. And I'm 
pretty easy guy to work with and reasonably musically literate uh, across enough genres that, you know, when I work with other people, it's very helpful. I haven't really had the experience of working in depth with someone who I would consider a producer who can listen to my stuff, for example, and be like, okay, here's what you need to do. You know, like the pre-chorus on this song needs to go somewhere. It's not good enough right now. The vocal track on this song, I know you can do it better, or I want you to do it more laid back, or I want you to do it more aggressive, or let's punch in. Uh, I, I would I would really enjoy that, I think. Um, it's not that I don't uh, think that I can do it myself. I clearly can, right? I, I produce stuff all the time. But having somebody knowledgeable engage with me and try to do what, say, Visconti did with... I, I wonder what it would be like to work with someone like a Tony Visconti, for example, or, or someone like that who's like, okay... Uh, even if they don't think that I'm, you know, T-Rex level or Bowie level, it's like, all right, I'm working with this artist. Let's see what I can do to to get something better out of him. I, I really wish I had had that opportunity 10, 20, 30 years ago because I think I would have learned a lot and it, it might have helped me go in different directions. I, I worry sometimes that I'm a little too set in my ways at this point. Now that said, right before the pandemic, um, I did record a bunch of tracks with uh, Sid Luscious in the Pants, like live in the studio, almost like a appeal sessions kind of a thing where we went in for a day and, and put down basic tracks for four songs. And it would have been cool to have a producer to go down to Hyde Street with us to, you know, tell us, do another take, whatever. But I, I did get to work a bit with a guy named Michael James when we were doing vocals and mixing. So I did all of the vocals later after the basic tracks were done at my home studio and was at least able to play some of the roughs for uh, for Michael James and get his his notes uh, on you know which take I should use. Do I need to do things again? And in a couple of spots, he's like, "Hey, I want to add some parts here. Like, I think that you know this song is pretty good, but you need you need some bits to elevate or change it." And in a couple of places, it really it really made a, a big difference. Um, and he's. He's someone who's worked with some legit people, you know, Hole, Hole and L7 and uh, Robin Ford and uh, Too Much Joy. And he had a, a, a gold record with uh, New Radicals. Um, and it was a lot of fun working with him. And I would love to, to, to do something like that and start start even earlier at like the pre-production stage, you know, talking about what kind of record are we going to make and what kind of songs do we want to write? And, you know, who are we ripping off and what's our palette and all that? <laughs> yeah, I like that. I mean, it's... I, Mostly, and it's for some people that are, I, I'm more gregarious and I really like people in general. I mean, I hate people in general, but I also, the people that I love, I love a lot. And I like working with people that I can trust and like kind of get where I'm at and I can get where they're at. There's something just magical that comes out of that process um, that you, I can't, I haven't been able to get any other way. I mean, you got to, I, I got to imagine like the work that both you guys do too, and you know, like sort of managing projects and products there's a whole lot of that it's not maybe not as sexy as like making a record but there's a lot of moving parts you got to like you know get everyone to paint the fence you know as it were and like how do you do that and uh and do it oh, yeah. in um, a kind without hammering on people and you know like yeah how do you so the same when I, I worked at an agency for a while you know i worked at, i worked at an advertising agency um as an engineer, like building stuff for uh, as as part of IO as part of pitch work, or as long term projects that we did for a certain athletic footwear manufacturer. Um, and when I worked there, there there was a notion of a producer. 
uh, it was typically uh, and that was their title. Uh, so in, in advertising agency land, um, there there is a there is an individual that's a title producer, and that person typically really just more takes the role of of um, what Otto. Well, like if they more they take the role of like what Otto does. They're, they're really product managers. They end up working like product managers, but they're 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 producers to the extent that they're um, making sure that the troops are on track to fulfill the SOW for for the for the client uh, that that we've got to deal with. So that kind of makes them a producer, but really they're just the project managers. Um, in, in, in our day-to-day work, it's the, the all of the stuff a producer does is very much uh, feels like uh, like a product product manager, kind of like what Honor does. So I, I suspect that Honor is a very good producer, in addition to being a very good product manager. Well, I got well, think- I do see a lot of overlap between those two things, and I've talked about it with other product managers I've interviewed, and and you know, kind of work I do. It is. As I said, it's a lot like being the director of a movie, and uh, you're trying to coordinate these different areas. And I think that the best producers and product managers, and in fact, in the games business uh, or in in other aspects of uh, digital media, people who do product management are often referred to as producers, right? So in 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 gaming, there is no typically a product manager role; it's a producer role instead. But I, I find that the folks who do that job best are people who actually have some experience and or relatively deep knowledge about things like coding, QA, uh, marketing, uh, much in the same way that someone, again, like Tony Visconti, as a bass player and former musician himself, he was, he was in a band, uh, knows how to write songs and how to play instruments and what an F sharp is and <laughs> the difference between a major and minor chord. And uh, I, I think all of those things really help you get better. And the best producers really are like that in the sense that they can speak the full spectrum of language. They're not just, they don't just resort to telling people to make it more blue, but they also aren't just like, uh, you need to play a little bit more ahead of the beat and you are sharp, right? There are plenty of musicians who won't, plenty of musicians who won't understand the first uh, thing and plenty of musicians who won't understand the second thing. So being able to figure out what language the person you're speaking to uh, understands and learning to communicate with them fluently and m- move around in the in the group between the engineer and the drummer and the bass player or whatever all, all those skills are super important yeah absolutely and I think the you know the level of creativity too I mean you know having someone who's a not just a technician like I got a I'm the the studio I'm thinking of is Abbey Road where when they first started recording, it was very much lab coats. You know, they were very much techni- technicians and engineers, like in the tr- the strictest sense. And, uh, you know, and the Beatles helped to really break that up for them because they had had some early success. They could kind of push back and they're like, oh, no, you can't record like that. And they're like, we want to record like that. Did you hear the new hit that we just put out? And they're just like, we're going to try this. And if it's awful, we'll go back to your way. And, you know, just they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And it's that friction of that, I think, there's so much that comes out of it, you know, where an engineer starts to become more of a producer. Like George Martin, for instance, another, you know, string arranger and like a whole lot of classical. He understood an orchestra, which is kind of a different way to think about uh, a band or an artist where you've got all these sort of sections 
and these frequencies that you're trying to excite, you know, or tap down. And um, Visconti seems to like be able to like uh, be a chameleon in a lot of these different worlds, you know, like I, I was just looking at his list again. I mean, he also did a Perry Farrell record. He worked with, uh, oh, did he really? you know, wow. Morrissey. Morrissey. Yeah, he did the last uh, Kind Heaven. I think that was the last thing Perry did um, on his own. I you remember know, that Morrissey, Morrissey like, record. That Morrissey album, I mean, he's just, yeah. that Morrissey album is really good that he did with him. It's actually quite good. Yeah, just, just you know, and a lot of these British bands, so he can slip out of like sort of a more American approach versus a British approach, you know, and just like, all the different cultural cues that come along with that stuff. I think that's really important for producers. And he seems to have mastered so much of that and, uh, and still going strong. I mean, just, you know, what an enviable career that's still continuing. It's not like he's hung it up or like, you know, Oh, that's nice. You know, back in the, like, you know, the seventies, he was a seventies guy. Then no one really thinks of him like that. You can look at his work and go, Holy shit. He did all that. And he's doing this now. You know, there's a lot of um, Nigel Godrich and, you know, people like that. There's all these producers that are just like they can slip in and out of these, you know, uh, different opportunities to to bring what their skill set to bear. I think the biggest thing for not only Tony, but like producers in general, it's just they got to make sure that shit gets finished. This seems to be the hardest thing for most musicians that I talk to. It's just like finishing shit in a really great way where it's like, okay, this is done. You hand it to the mastering guy. The, the mastering guy ultimately finishes it, hopefully. And the artist has to go, yep, this is done. But, uh, you know, to get all the parts in the right places at the right time and the artist is happy, reasonably happy and the producer's reasonably happy because it is all just kind of a negotiation. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it seems like Tony speaks a, a lot of different... Uh, languages you know musically culturally emotionally i would imagine too i knew someone that had worked with him he was such a huge bowie fan and um yeah it was interesting to hear his stories about sort of his experience of working with him you know i don't i've never met the met mr visconti before but uh, perhaps someday anyway i like that he's still out there doing it 70-some-odd years old, and he's out there playing bass with a bunch of kids for, for the kids, playing the old stuff, for the playing the hits for the kids. It's great. Yeah, and he, it's great. And he doesn't seem to really wield it like that's that's his thing. You know, he's just kind of out there playing music and, like, opp opportunities come up, and he's like, yeah, I can make that work. Let's do that. But without being, like, that guy from that period where it's just like, oh, no, that's the thing that he does, and that's all of what he does, you know. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that you that you sell yourself short as a producer, Michael Haley, because uh, like Tony Visconti, we played in bands together, and um, so when when you did step in to help us produce, you, you know you were giving us notes the way a producer would. You you were, you were kind of keeping us keeping us on track. And making sure that we, we got stuff finished on time and, and got stuff delivered on time. I mean, it, it, you, you were um, a big influence that way in steering the ship. Oh, thank you. For sure. It's fun. Thank you for saying that. I, you know, don't, I don't want to let my head get too big here. It's already big enough. I've measured it. It's big. big. I have a giant head. 
I just I found a, a track that was on my desktop on one, one of my computers, and I was listening to it. I really love this song. It's by uh, my friend Rob Grad, and uh, I couldn't remember what I had done on it. I knew I did something on it. I just couldn't remember. <laughs> so I had called him, and I just mixed three songs for him, too. And I said, hey, I found that song on my desktop. Do you remember what I did on it? And he's like, yeah, you basically produced it. And I went, I did? And he said, yeah, you. we recorded the vocals at your place in Los Feliz when you were living there. I brought these basic tracks over to you. It was like some drums and a piano and a guitar. And I said, do you mind if I try some stuff on this? And that's one of those things, you know, it's like, you know, I want to mess around with this. It's It was beautiful. It sounded great. But I thought I wanted to try some stuff because he said, I'm not sure what to do with it. And I said, I know what to do with it. And so I tried some stuff and... Anyway, he loved it. It was just really great. He he wasn't super happy with his vocal in the end. We just didn't have a lot of time. But um, I thought I liked the, the, it was a very sort of intimate, emotional vocal. But uh, yeah, apparently I've done stuff that I don't even remember. So that's a little embarrassing. But it was also, I'm starting to put together stuff for a website, you know, where I can go, oh, this is some of the stuff I've done. So it's interesting to kind of look at, you know, I am no Tony Visconti, but I do really like that process of sort of interacting and improving, expanding, contracting, you know, all the just experimenting with stuff without letting it go on forever. Like obviously deadlines and boundaries are a really good thing and getting shit done. So I'm going to make your head, I'm going to make your head even bigger. Do so, so thinking about the thinking again about what Anu on his question about have you guys ever worked with producers? We had opportunities to work with producers. When when we got on Cleo, they were like, "Do you go, do you guys want to use a producer?" And we said, "No." And they said, "Do you guys want to have have a producer?" No, really. And we said, "No, really, no. We don't want a producer." Then they said, "Hey, we can get the dude that uh, produced all the Egypt, the Egypt, Egyptian Lover albums to to sit in and produce. Do you want to do, do you want to use him?" And we said, "No." And they said. Okay, we're going to send him over and we'll have you got, and let you meet him and watch watch you practice. And we said no, no. but okay. Then um, no. we had an opportunity to get Ken Jordan and Scott Cablet from the Crystal Method before they were Ken Jordan and Scott Cablet. And uh, we ended up saying no, we want Michael. Then this some, this is something I don't think I don't think I've ever talked to you about Michael. We had an opportunity to get Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin was Who? the guy that produced Dark Side Bob of the Moon. Ezrin. Bob Ezrin. Pink Floyd's The Ezrin. Wall, Dark Side of the Moon, right. Destroyer Who? by Kiss. Bob Ezrin, Michael. Stop it. They said, Stop it. They, said they go, no. hey, do you, do you want to work with Bob Ezrin? We said, no, we just want to, we want to work with Michael. <laughs> I'm serious. Every, the every point we were just like, we just, like we, just want, we just want to do this shit with Michael, man. Just leave us alone. So there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That is, I did not know this. Um, Bob fucking Ezrin, motherfucker. I probably would have picked Bob Ezrin. No offense to me, but Bob, come on. You would have ended up sounding like Kiss of that era, yeah. but, And we, you know, we didn't want that. We whatever. didn't really want to sound like Pink Floyd either. I, I, you know, I mean, thinking about it now, like, yeah, maybe he could have done something, but it just didn't. It didn't feel like anything he did, like really work with our sensibilities in any been, way, shape, or form. 
It would have been know? super fucking weird. It would have been weird, right? And the, per- the person that floated the, the idea didn't it didn't seem like he understood that. It was just like, but but dude, I can get by. It's like I don't. We don't. We just want to work with Michael. We don't care. So what? Great. Go go. Thank you. Use him for somebody else. I'll see if I can work that into my website. Beat out Bob Ezrin once. Yes. I like that. There you go. I don't know. Thank you. Thanks for telling me that. I had no idea. Yeah. If I ever bump into so Bob. Pink Floyd and Kiss, when you guys get back together to make another record, don't call Bob. Call Michael. That's right. All right. He did Kiss, too. Did he do Kiss? Dot com. Did Ezrin? Oh, do? yeah. He did, really. Destroyer. Did he do the Kiss stuff? No shit. I love that record. Oh, wow. He's, the, he's the one who's responsible for uh, why Detroit Rock City is so awesome. Yeah. He basically, oh, he came up good. with that whole guitar solo and hummed it to Ace and was like, play this. Wow. Well, it's a good thing I never talked to, talked to Chris, the bass player, about any of this because he, he was a huge Kiss fan and Destroyer was his favorite album. So he might have he pushed for it. Yeah. I would never hum a guitar part into your ear. By the no, way. no. Maybe you, maybe you. But do 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 do. Play it like I, this, I, like Frank Sinatra singing this part. I'm sure part of why he did that, Michael, is that uh, Ace Frehley doesn't read music, you know. Yeah. And 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 as we all know, there's a limited amount of like, look at my hands, because then you're like, I can't tell because it's in the mirror. It's all backwards. <laughs> like. <laughs> And and that's assuming that Ace wasn't blasted out of his mind on whatever he was doing, oh, which bless, was a lot. Bless his soul. Bless his I heart. That I, Ace I, I, say, I say it worked out for the best. I really like what we did, you know. Limited budget, limited time. You guys had, you know, your parts and I just it was it was great. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm looking forward to doing more, you know, I, th- I think as, as the, the circumstances start to open up, you know, even just doing more remote stuff, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of that stuff because I really, it's fun. It's super fun. And, I, you know, it's one of those things. So if you were to put together, who would be your, do you think Tony Visconti would be, for both of you, like your ideal producer to work with? Or would you just create a project to work with him if you had the opportunity and just be like, oh, I know what I would do with Tony Visconti. It really depends on what, I, what I'd be doing, I think. Um, yeah, for anything that, that, for anything I might be doing that didn't, didn't fall too far into like R&B, hip hop, dance territory, Yes, but but for that other stuff, like there's other there's other people that I I have my own dream producers for that kind of stuff. Yeah, like I'd love to work with Metro Boomin. Like I think Metro Boomin's amazing. Um, he has a very signature. He has a very signature set of things he does with his production. He's one of those guys where you hear it and and, and it, without even you know you don't even have to look at the the credits and know it's Metro Boomin because it's just very specific things he does sonically. Yeah. Um, and um, he's a great hip hop producer, and I, and I think that he could be great at many things, purely based on on his on on the hip hop productions that he does. I'm a big fan. What about you, Ani? 
Would you would you make up a project for uh, <laughs> to work with him? I mean, I, it it sort of depends, right? Like if if for some reason all of a sudden it's like, hey, Tony Visconti wants to work with you on something, um, I would actually probably sit down and talk with him, and I mean, and basically say, well, what do you want to do? Like, what Tony knowing here, I'd play him a bunch of my stuff, and I'd be like. Knowing what I can do, and this is the spectrum of things I can do, what what do you think is going to work? Because, you know, I have a bunch of different masks or hats that I, I, I put on in my musical style, and I don't have something where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is what I would do with him. I know that I would not want to try to do like a T-Rex knockoff or a Bowie knockoff. I'd want to do something that was uh, unique and individual. Um, and so so I think in the case of someone like him, it would be a conversation first to figure out like what what do you think is going to work for me because uh, he's a good enough producer that if I went in there and I'm like I want to make a you know cowboy techno record or something he'd be like okay sure we'll we'll figure that out but uh, I would start with a conversation with him about what he thinks is going to be interesting I think in in general if if I could work with any producer there's a few people I I would sort of pull up and be like oh. Th- this person seems like someone that it would be worth working with. I would love to work with someone like Brian Eno simply because I think we have similar sensibilities and enough commonalities in the background that um, we'd be able to pretty quickly get to something interesting. Um, I would love to work with someone like Niall Rogers who knows how to make big pop hits. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. Fuck yeah. Um, Yeah, I was just thinking of him. You know, uh, in in the sense that, like, this is a guy who he can play anything. He's worked with a bunch of artists, but he, he also knows how to make something uh, funky and make it a hit. I mean, really almost anybody, you know, as, as we talked about it, I think all these folks have something that they pull out of people. Um, I'm less interested in sort of the huge pop guys like Max Martin or The Matrix or people like that because I kind of get what they do. Um I'm I'm more interested in someone who goes a little bit past like how do I make this song blow up on radio, yeah. You know, um, someone who's going to be one of the things that is appealing to me about someone like Mutt Lang, for example, is that he does get involved at the songwriting level at the very early in the in the pre pro process of like, all right, play me your song. Okay, that's not good enough. Let's work. <laughs> let's work on that. Let's make it better. Uh, or even someone who's like, you know, you say you want to make. Uh, a folk record, but that's not really interesting. Let's put a spin on it. Let's take it in a different direction. Someone, someone who I can bat both the high level ideas of like who am I as an artist and what kind of record are we trying to make, bat that stuff around and sharpen it up. But also someone who in the studio can be like, don't do it that way, do it this way, or try it like this. Yeah, absolutely. My mine would be like uh, one of them would be Daniel Lamois. Uh, oh with, yeah, with, sure. Uh, with or without Eno, whatever. Daniel Lamois is amazing. And, uh, you know, and obviously Visconti, I mean, I would make something up to fucking work with him, you know, and, may, and maybe well, something. It's an interesting sort of idea to really go like, you know, if you had a dream producer to work with, how would you be writing? Because we have the ability to do that. It's not like we're one trick ponies. We all kind of do. We wear a lot of different masks. And I think that might be an interesting exercise musically you know, maybe come up with a song like, okay, Tony Visconti is going to be in town and he's, he has heard about you and do you have a song you want to do with him? And I'd be like, I will just give me, you know, two days. I will walk in with something to work on. 
that might be kind of an interesting exercise, you know, to, to put that hat on. And like, what well, would you learn from, you know, Tony Visconti, if you were going to work with him, like what, what, what would be your expectations? And like, uh, as an artist, both of you guys, uh, that's a curious kind of idea as well. Definitely goes without, you know, I, I didn't say this because in my mind, it's like, well, it goes without saying it would have been my wet dream to, to have been able to work with him on the thing I'm working on right now. Yeah. No question. Because this, this thing I'm working on right now is, is not real. you know, I keep framing it as like, like, um, trying to do something with, with early seventies Visconti glam rock sensibilities. But, but as time wore on, it's, I began to realize, no, it, this is really about just, just trying to draw inspiration from his production sensibilities more than anything. Yeah. It's curious. We certainly, certainly, a. uh, a revelator, you know, in terms of what he's, he just continues to make stuff. I mean, it just keeps blowing my mind, you know, and obviously he's, there's some, you know, I have a couple of producer friends who just aren't doing anything right now. And it's just kind of boggles. They've got gold records and platinum records on the wall. And I'm like, have you thought about it? And one of them doesn't even have a fucking website. And I'm like, oh, that might help. You know, do people know you and what you've done? He's done tons of stuff. And, uh, you know, but it's interesting how that sort of shifts out of that world because it is a fucking hustle. I got to say, you know, if, if anything, I'm sure Visconti's like a hustler. You know what I mean? <laughs> Look at there's Hazel Cox. Special appearance. Oh, my goodness. Hazel. Oh, she can't hear. Ha, <laughs> so funny she got that paul stanley hair today what would you do anu if mr visconti is uh come knocking on your door what kind of record would you like to make with mr visconti i like this game we're playing by the way well you know as i mentioned I, i'd probably ask him but these days i'm kind of interested in doing something that is sort of pulling all of my different ideas together um, I kind of, I'm thinking that my next record might be sort of like adult contemporary. <laughs> mm. Um, you know, I, I'm, I would sort of pitch him and say, okay, look, uh, I'm not a kid, you know, uh, I'm old enough now that, uh, me trying to do like punk rock or something that is really young and aggressive, I don't think is going to work. So why don't we make, um, like a Charday record, but more alternative, Right. So um, maybe some synthesizer, uh, maybe some drum loops and drum machines with some live percussion, some croony kinds of vocals and a little bit of guitar and not something that's sleepy, but not not too aggressive either. You know, like, yeah. And that's that's sort of what I'm thinking about right now and see what he, what he would have to say about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, I'm I would listen to that. Yeah. It seems like it just kind of all boils down to ideas, you know? You could walk in with like, oh, I've got five records I want to make. And, you know, take your choice. Like, you know, you guys do a lot of that, too. I'm, I'm, it's been inspiring over the years. I call on you. I'm like, okay, what kind of record are you making this, this month? You know, and it's like, and then you spit out another record. And I'm like, holy shit, that's great. How did you do that? Why am I not doing that? You know? 
And I think that's great to have those ideas in our back pockets. You know, if, I guess if I was going to have leave people with something today, you know, you can work with anyone you want. You just got to have the ideas and try and, you know, at least sketches of things. Because, like, producers are just looking for people to work with so they can build on their skills and help you develop your talents. Because I think that's ultimately what great producers do is they really make they make good artists great or great artists like superstars like Niall Rogers. I mean, when I heard that story when David Bowie went to him and said, I want a hit. I don't have, I've never had a hit. And he's had all those successful records, but like successful, he never actually had like a hit. And he handed one over to him. He's like, Oh, here you go. Let's dance. You know? So I read Niall Rogers, uh, autobiography which is great it's called the freak uh highly recommend it uh if, if there are so many stories where you're like holy crap you did that and you know this person but he talks about that experience with bowie and it's funny because uh, niall was basically at a point in his career where he didn't want to make hit records he wanted to make art and he said he was a little disappointed when david bowie one of the great <laughs> musical artists met up with him and he was hoping bowie was like i'm i want to make something even weirder than the Berlin Trilogy, and he's like, Niall, you know, you make hits, and I want a hit. Uh, but then he talks about how basically they went to, uh, I don't know if it was a place that Bowie owned, but they were in France, uh, in, you know, in like a place to write together. And it's like maybe their first day, they're getting to know each other. And he said, Bowie shows up in the door doorway of the room I'm in with like this 12-string guitar that's like missing a bunch of strings. And he's like, Niall, I've got this song and I, th- I think it's a hit. Let me know what you think. And he said, he starts playing these very jazzy chords and kind of strumming this thing that sounds like folk music. And he's like, this one's called Let's Dance and sort of like plays this song. And he was like, hold hold on a second. And basically runs to another room and picks up the phone and he's calling one of his friends. He's like, Bowie's playing me this song and he thinks it's a hit and I think it sounds like garbage. Like, what do, what do I do? You know, like, do I tell him I don't think it's good? Like, and, and Spider's basically like, well, you know, you'll figure it out. Um, and you know, there you go. Yeah. So funny. It's all about people. You know, they keep saying it's business and art and all that, but it's just people trying to figure out what the other person's saying it seems to be yeah I, i've heard that story too and he and he was he he said he said the, th- the thing that that made it worse was the song was called let's dance he goes i'm niles, Ro- niles rogers and and i'm being asked to to help out with a song called let's dance he goes it better fucking be it better have a groove like it better be catchy and it better be danceable so in addition to that, hearing this song played on a 12 string that that he listened to and, and walked away puzzled. Like he, it was also called less dance at that point still, and he had to figure out something to do with it. And he did. Yeah, he did. That whole record's pretty amazing. China girl wasn't China girl on that record too. And yeah, oh yeah, yeah, whole bunch of hits. yes, modern like, love, oh. China girl, let's dance. I mean, there's there's a couple of like just okay songs on there too but it's one of those things where he brought his a team of hot players in there and they banged that thing out super quick um and it it sounds amazing and even if even if shake it is not a great song (laughs) there's plenty of other interesting things on there and it's still a little bit weird and it got bowie what he wanted which was a big massive hit and then bowie was like oh no it turns out 
I hate yeah. being what a now? giant rock star. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, yeah, and then, and he, he, then he, felt- he had a couple of other unsuccessful commercial records, and then he's like, fuck it, I'm going back to being weird. Pretty much. Yeah. Stay weird. Those are good good uh, producer words. Just stay fucking weird. Stay true. I hate that, the authentic word, which I guess you could call it <laughs> oh, that. It makes me insane. Well, we, we could you know, that we said, you know, I think... Tire, here's what I'd like to do, devote an entire episode to, to, to words that artists say that make us fucking insane. Authentic, use excessive use of authentic is one. Journey makes me makes me want to throw something at, at the TV every time I hear it. Journey, journey. You're on an angry path, D. It, Your path is very angry insane. today. It's just like such a. <laughs> it, it's such a trope. It's such a I don't know. Like it just seems. It's just a way too convenient way to describe something. It may not have anything We're to gonna, do with, should... with what's being discussed in the sentence. We're definitely going to do it like a tirade episode and you're going to like direct us just a full on get off my lawn episode. John and like, John. I think if we bring like two or three little tirades with us, I think we'll, we could fill up a few hours. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we could. I'll figure out some shit to make it really incendiary. It's just a because <laughs> that's what good producers do. That's what Bob is going to do. <laughs> He'd, Things you shouldn't he'd do. make you so fucking angry. Don't do this shit. Get the best performance. Yeah. Oh man, we, emotion. We did, don't, we did. Don't be too precious. Now we. Now we. Now we have to do. These are the things that should never come out of your mouth. Yeah. Be incredibly precious. All right. Did we cover Visconti? That was a, a very interesting like- episode. Yeah, I feel like this one's kind of reached its logical conclusion. And that's okay. Should we pull it? Should All right, we... t- time to pull a card. Time to pull a card. Right. Dee, do you have your deck or do you want me to pull a card on your behalf? No, I, I, Hazel actually grabbed my, my deck before we left, believe it or oh. not. I was shocked. She goes, hey, I, I, brought, the car, I brought the card deck too because I knew you were going to record. God love her. She's the best. Do you want me to hit okay. the uh, the drum roll, or do you want to do it? Do the honor, sir. All right. Here we go. Whoa. I got a I've got a very producer card for me. Yeah, slow preparation, fast, fast execution for Michael Haley. Anu Scott, don't be frightened to display your talents. <laughs> don't be frightened. Mine is you don't have to be ashamed using your own ideas. Yeah, be authentic, D. You're not being authentic. authentic. That's not. You're authentic. That's not. No. You're a very authentic. No. Authentic, authentic path. 
No. No, I'm not. I'm a big phony. Fuck off. You big phony. Who do you think you are? Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, fellas. Kind of went all over the place on that one. We talked about all the producers. That's That'd be okay. a good episode, too. More producers. More producers? All More right. Producer episodes? Well, I mean, we had another one of mine that somebody said Tony Viscana. I said, yeah, that's cool. So, we could do this again. Superstars. Well, thank you, everybody. It was a great episode. Is this going to play? Well done. Good. So, well done. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things. You know, you can find us on the socials. We've got the fan page uh, on the Facebooks. We've got the Instagram feeds. We've got um, we've got a website now. And um, I've I've been I've been uh, seeing some some good feedback coming through on the socials lately. People tagging me and saying that telling me that they're listening to the show, and that they yeah. and that they're digging it, which is which has been really gratifying and great. I should also say that um, to my friend, my friend Dave Castro, who fronted uh, the, the punk band I was in the Uninvited. Yes, yes, Dave. I will not call you Dave Castro anymore. I will, I will, from this point forward, <laughs> I will refer to you to as Dave Dirt, which was what everybody knows Dave as. He's Dave Dirt. I think, I think I'm a, at some point I, I, I refer to him as Tony's cousin Dave Castro, but he's Dave Dirt. So there, Dave Dirt. He's the best. He's a good dude. We'll see y'all next week. Facebook, next week. Instagram, website, uh, admin at musicmindfulnessmadness.com. Send us emails. Send us recipes. Write your name and your address on the back of a $100 bill and send it to us, and we'll send you uh, something beautiful. Okay. Okay. No, don't do that, Yachty. actually. That'll get lost. <laughs> All right, right. We'll see you next week on music, <laughs> mindfulness, and madness. Oh my Taking God. us out is going to be the nonstop got a funk sound of Queen. Woo! All right. See you next week. Howdy.